Hello, rhetorical listeners. Welcome to the 40th episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. This episode features a discussion with Dr. John Gallagher, author of the new book, Update Culture and the Afterlife of Digital Writing. They would update something and then it would be gone. Like the old version that I just asked them about would just be totally gone. There's no record that there was an update, right? It's just, you hit, they click update on WordPress, on Reddit, on their Amazon reviews, whatever happens to be, and then poof, you know, this new version that there's no record of the old version. A lot of them talked about the algorithm, but algorithms of their respective platforms, Reddit, Amazon, etc. But they didn't necessarily know how the algorithm functioned. So they had to sort of imagine algorithmic timing. They're like, I think this is how the algorithm works. And so this is going to dictate when I share something, when I post something, when I, when I, when I respond to something, right? You'll hear more from John in a bit. Colleges and universities across the world have begun to prepare for the fall semester in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. There are a range of options for universities based on a range of factors, including student demographic, geographic location, and programs of study offered. According to The Big If, written by Lila Burke and published on Inside Higher Ed, quote, two universities in the California State University system, San Jose State and Cal State Fullerton, have been open about considering and planning for a fall semester online. Though officials at those colleges have emphasized that nothing is set in stone, they are getting everything in order for a possible virtual semester, end quote. Other universities are taking a different approach. Specifically, I noticed on a story on one of my social media feeds that Purdue University expects face-to-face classes in the fall. From their president, Mitch Daniels, quote, Purdue University for its part, intends to accept students on campus in typical numbers this fall. Sober about the certain problems that the COVID-19 virus represents, but determined not to surrender helplessly to those difficulties, but to tackle and manage them aggressively and creatively, end quote. There are myriad different ways to tackle the question of when to bring students back to campus. One option that I've seen floated around in various communities of which I'm a member is to move to a quartered schedule for the fall semester. In this scenario, students would study the first half of the semester online, that's one quarter of the academic year, and then return to campus for the rest of the semester the second quarter of the academic year. The logistics of this scenario are complex, and it's not necessarily an option for everyone or an option for which I advocate. Yet, I guess the best way to say this is that we must operate as if any and all options are on the table, and we must be flexible and malleable as plans come to fruition. 
If you would like to join the Big Rhetorical Podcast to discuss your plan or your institution's plan for classes in the fall, please reach out. John R. Gallagher is an assistant professor at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. He studies interfaces, digital rhetoric, participatory audiences, and technical communication. He has been published in Computers and Composition, Enculturation, Rhetoric Review, Transformations, Technical Communication Quarterly, and Written Communication. His monograph, Update Culture and the Afterlife of Digital Writing, is available from Utah State University Press. He also co-edited a 77-chapter collection with Danielle Nicole DeVos entitled Explanation Points, Publishing in Rhetoric and Composition. I first became aware of Dr. Gallagher's work at Computers and Writing Conference 2018 at George Mason University. I have kept up with his work since then, even attending his panel at 2019 ATTW Conference. His article in Jim Rodolfo's and William Hart Davidson's Red Ops, Rhetoric and Information Warfare, titled Dark Interactions, Interfaces, and Object Arrays as Digital Rhetoric, is one of his works to seek out, for sure. I was quite excited when Dr. Gallagher reached out to me about joining the podcast to discuss his new book, Update Culture and the Afterlife of Digital Writing. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. John Gallagher. here at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign and uh, yeah Champaign is a pretty it's not a small town it's actually about a hundred thousand people okay but it's sort of in the middle of nowhere if you imagine a giant cornfield on every side of the city that is where I live <laughs> um, so I mean it's one of these like standard land-grant universities that it's very large as a university, but it's sort of plunked down in the middle of nowhere in a sort of a rural area. Um, so, for instance, like a mile from my house, all of the all of the roads are not named. They just have numbers. There's like U.S. Highway, like, you know, 2913. How long have you been at Champaign at, at, at uh, University of Illinois? Yeah, so this is my sixth year here. Um, I did three years as a visiting assistant professor, as a non-tenure track faculty member. And then um, this is my third year on the tenure track here. Excellent. Excellent. Um, where did you do your PhD at? I did my PhD at UMass. Okay. So UMass? I guess that's a total different change than living in Champaign. Yeah. I mean, they're both, I mean, they're both sort of land grant universities. Right. Um, you know, Amherst is not necessarily in the middle of nowhere, but it's um, still a, a fairly rural area. You know, you, I, I, my directors were um, Donna Laporte and Ann Harrington, so they were both, they're both fabulous people. Are you from the New England area? I'm not. I'm not. I'm actually from Philadelphia, so I have okay. a lot of Philadelphia pride. 
even though I don't really watch football, I was ecstatic when they won the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. Okay. So, but yeah, UMass was a good experience. How are things for you now? What are your days like? I guess this as well. I mean, it's only day two, so okay. I mean, I know people are sort of estimating it to last a long time now. I don't know what you're doing, but you have you have kids, right? I don't have kids. I have dogs, though. Dogs. <laughs> not kids. <laughs> yeah, and not so, the same thing. <laughs> yeah, so I have two kids, um, a four-year-old and a six-month-old. Um, and we're all home. Um, my wife my wife is a faculty member. People are just trying to figure stuff out, and we're trying to figure out the what to do and where we – I mean, there's nowhere to go, right? I mean, there, quite literally, there's nowhere to go. All the libraries are closed. All of the gyms are closed. All of the restaurants, the bars, the coffee shops, everything is closed. The university is closed. Today, my uh, my English department actually got, like, the building was shut down because somebody had flu-like symptoms. So they shut the entire building down um, and are sterilizing it. And they don't know when they're going to open it back up again. So there's very few places to go. I took a walk with my four-year-old today. And um, she's learned to ride her bike. So that's pretty cool. I was pretty excited about that. She yeah. actually picked her feet up and put them on the pedals and like pedaled like nine or ten times without any help. So that was like the big moment in my day while I'm also trying to like do a little bit of work on the side and, you know, manage everything. And maybe this will maybe this will resolve itself by the time this podcast comes out. But I am like slightly concerned because like we do need toilet paper as a family. <laughs> And there's just there isn't any. I mean, I'm sure I can buy some of the stuff that isn't selling, but yeah. I mean, I, I'll share with you that I saw this interesting thing on social media somewhere. There was like places that still have like toiletries or like office supply places, like Office Depot and things like that, uh, which I thought was really fascinating. I didn't know they sold those things. Um, yeah, I thought about I thought about going there. Um, so it's um it's funny though because the, the the restaurants closing as someone with kids the restaurants closing the bars closing affects me zero percent yeah <laughs> <laughs> so people are like oh we can't go out i'm like ah, i'm not really going out at night anyways but the, the library's closing affects me and so far it's a little chilly out so we haven't really had to worry too much about going to parks but i don't think the parks are officially closed you're here to talk more about your new book, which I know you're excited about. What's the title of your new book? The title of my new book is Update Culture and the Afterlife of Digital Writing. It's from Utah State Press. Um, it came out uh, in January of 2020. Um, All right. And Excellent. it's a pretty cool book. Um, it's uh, I tried writing it. Um, without too much jargon so i tried making it sort of as understandable as possible Mm -hmm. Um, that was actually one of my goals and uh the main point of the book is that there are a lot of things that writers do after they write and we have to consider those things that they do after they write as part of the writing process and so i use the example in the book it's a one-off example but you know novelists have always gone on like book tours or something like that and that's something they, that like is the responsibility of a novelist or someone, even someone who just publishes a book. And so that's sort of the afterlife of, of writing. And all writing has an afterlife. And digital writing, I make the argument in the book, has an afterlife that is, um, is, is more scaled up 
than in previous instantiations of print writing. So while all writing has always had some sort of afterlife, digital writing has a much more intense afterlife because of the real-time ability of people to give feedback and receive feedback, and then writers can actually respond to that feedback. One of the things that I think your book does well is make these concrete connections to print genres throughout history, right? Especially Mm -hmm. in relation to rhetorical canons like delivery and circulation. One of the quotes that I pulled out from the text when I was reviewing it was, these conversations trace the evolution of texts, conversations, and discourse as they circulate rather than what writers or speakers are doing as the discourse as that discourse evolves. So I wonder when we think about a rhetorical canon like circulation, and we bring this idea of update culture and afterlife, what how does that change the way we might see or conceive circulation? Yeah, so there's a little bit more to that quote than you read. So that that quote is basically saying like these conversations are referring to like what the field has said. Um, and so oh, shit, that's important. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's these conversations, these scholarly conversations are focused on the evolution of texts and the conversations and the discourse as they circulate. And so a lot of them are paying attention to the actual text or what was written rather than what the writers and speakers are doing as that stuff circulates. So the example I use is, you know, Lori Grees is very well received book and it's a good book. um, Still life with rhetoric. She talks a lot about the Obama hope picture and about how that sort of moves around. But there isn't a whole lot of analysis or time spent on who's actually moving those images around and what their purposes were. Um, And so I use the example of, you know, what if Shepard Fairley, the originator of the, the Obama hope picture, if he had changed the picture in response to like a Twitter mob or what if he had changed, you know, the color scheme based on um, a whole mass set of people like writing at the bottom of a blog post or something like that. And so I'm basically looking at, okay, because people have comments, because people can receive responses from actual audiences of a received piece of discourse, a text, whatever, um, what are they doing in with that real-time response that they're receiving. And so I'm trying to focus on, rather than the texts themselves as they circulate, what are people, the embodied people, doing as the texts circulate? And so the book makes the argument that there's this afterlife, and what does that look like? And I then make the argument through empirical observations of 40 case studies that people are doing three, basically, modes um, when they write in terms of their afterlife. And those are timing, attention, and management. So they are timing their texts, which is sort of a thing that like we don't really think about having to do too much with. It's much more of an oral notion uh, than a print notion, than a writing notion. And so they have to time their texts. They have to attend their texts. They have to give attention to their texts. They have to give attention to their audiences and their commenters. And then they have to manage their texts. So, you know, comment management, managing, you know, social media management, all this other stuff. And so, and each of those is each of timing, attention and management are chat, are data chapters in the book, so to speak. And those three things sort of coalesce together. I sort of think of them as sort of in a Venn diagram to sort of form the, the digital afterlife of texts. Why did you choose the word afterlife? Oh, that's really interesting. Actually, I had originally titled the book update cult, uh, the continuing conversation 
uh, update culture. And I kept talking about stuff that was happening after we initially wrote. So I was talking about there's a whole set of writing processes that happen after we write that we need to attend to. And one of the reasons why we don't do that necessarily in writing studies is because of the pedagogical focus, right? It's hard to attend to the afterlife when you get a grade and then everyone's done with the text or you're done with a semester. But I actually have a specific person. So Maria Lombardo, who is a person at Illinois who helps people. She has a first book writing group. So this is sort of sponsored by the university to help tenure track faculty members write their first book. She actually you don't have to be on the tenure track to be part of the group. And, she, you know, she and I were chatting one time and she said, it seems like this is like an afterlife of these texts that they're taking on. She said, it's almost, you know, you, it's almost like the afterlife of digital writing. I was like, oh, that's a good that's that's a good title. Yeah. I, like um, that. I, actually, I actually put that in the acknowledgments. I actually thanked her because sort of she came up with that that concept. And that was probably in like. 2016 that's how long ago it was because you know when by the time books come out they're pretty old hat for the people who are writing them we've been writing them for you know a long time and you go through the editing process which takes a long time so yeah so she probably first suggested it to me in 2016 afterlife then you're proposing is a part of this idea of update culture can you explain a little bit about what update culture actually is yeah so update culture is sort of the the need to revisit one's texts due to audience response and audience reception. And I use the term update for a couple of reasons. You know, the first is that um, it sort of folds in the language of software updates um, in the sense of like, you know, something has happened. We need to do an update, new piece of software or something, you know, iterated upon. And the second is just simply, you know, to make the presence of something, something new, but something old is also still there. Right. So it, Update culture isn't trying to do away with, you know, the past 2000 years of writing. So there there is some sort of connection to the past and that, you know, update culture isn't some some radical break from print culture. It's just a remediate remediated version of it. And then basically just the third the third point is just basically make the argument that, you know, text can actually literally be updated in a way that print text can't. You know, I can and this sort of happened to me a lot when I was interviewing people where I would ask them questions, especially doing discourse-based interviews, where I would actually have, I would take a screenshot, make an edit to their text, and then send it to them, and I would ask them questions about it. And in the process of asking them questions about it, they would go, oh, I need to change this now in response to the question you've asked me. I'm going to update it. And they would they would update something, and then it would be gone. Like the old version that I just asked them about would just be totally gone. There's no record that there was an update, right? It's just you hit, they click update on WordPress, on Reddit, on their Amazon reviews, whatever happens to be, and then poof, you know, this new version. That there's no record of the old version. So, you know, just to make just to make clear that new changes can be made pretty rapidly. So, in your book specifically, I believe you looked at New York Times reviews or responses. No, so I, I looked at redditors. Redditors at. Uh, Amazon reviewers. I looked at science journalists, and I looked at some bloggers. So the my big get for the book is um, Heather Armstrong, who has who was formerly the number one mommy blogger on the internet. She has over a million Twitter followers. Pretty cool, you know. She's she's been interviewed in like the New York Times and stuff. She was my big get. I interviewed her twice for the book, very graciously. But the my principles of selection for 
who I selected was people had to have a lot of attention. So people who, so I contacted top tier Redditors. I contacted top tier Amazon reviewers, people who are ranked very highly. I contacted people who had a lot of followers on Twitter. So people who had at least 30,000 followers on Twitter and who, who, and then all of these people who identified as a writer, everybody I sort of identified as sort of said very loosely that they were writers. You know, some people said, I'm not really a writer. Like some of the Redditors were like, well, I'm not quite a writer, but I do write. So, you know, my principles of selection were they had a lot of attention and they, and they, some sort of loose identification of being a writer. What conversations, ongoing conversations in the field or from a, from a historical perspective or now is your, is your work contending with? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm engaging readily with the, the ongoing conversation about circulation. Mm. So Dustin Edwards, Porter, DeVos and Rodolfo, uh, Grease. Basically, you know, there's there's a large conversation about circulation in the last 10 years. I mean, Ed Bauer, Chris Mays. I mean, there's a lot of different sort of people who are a little bit more in writing, who are a little bit more in comp, composition, people who are maybe more in the rhetorical theory, um, more the theory side. There's even some people who I'm in conversation with in terms of communications. So there's a lot of communication scholars who are studying like influencers and if I had been in a communications department, I might have used influencer to describe my participants rather than just writer. Because I think they do a lot more than just writing. I mean, mm. a lot of them do, right? They have YouTube channels. They're cutting up video. But they're also doing a lot of writing. My main piece of engagement with, with, this, with the scholarship is that you know, circulation has largely attended to the text or to the effects of the text. My book deals with what people are doing. So it's not necessarily what they're doing that can be seen, but it is what they're doing and sort of behind the scenes and trying to document that and make it explicit. And the reason why that's so important is because it's very easy to sort of see an image, a, a blog post, a tweet, something that just goes viral or circulates around the internet, moves around, and then not know that there was a lot of labor, that there was a whole person behind that, that there's a lot of different choices that were being made in terms of how to circulate and why to circulate. And so I'm trying to sort of preface my research by saying, you know, I'm not necessarily concerned with what people are writing or the effects of their texts. I'm more worried about what the people are doing and what their choices, what the choices that they're making are. And that's a little bit harder to do. Because you actually have to talk to the people. You have to find out about what they're doing and you have to sort of analyze their text with those choices in mind. So it, require, it requires interviews with people to get the behind the scenes stuff. And so the, the, the big chapter about it sort of makes this crystal is, is the timing chapter. So I call it textual timing. And people talk about, you know, it was very important to almost all of my participants about when to share something. Right. It's not just about sharing it. It's about when to share it. So, you know, a lot of them were like, never share something on Friday night or Saturday morning. You know, it doesn't get picked up. They said, you know, share it at lunchtime on the weekdays. Share it when people are getting home from work at like five o'clock. You know, share it on Wednesday, you know, in the morning when people are kind of bored because it's the middle of the week. And so there's a lot of thought given to not just sharing something, but about when to share it. And sort of, you know, thinking about timestamps very carefully was important to my participants. 
and I have sort of different models of time. So I, you know, I talk about Kairos Kronos fusion in my, in the book, um, where people think about time, not just in terms of Kairos, but they think about it in terms of Kronos sort of clock time, quantitative time, and they try to fuse those things together. So I sort of think of Kairos as being qualitative time. And I think of Kronos as being quantitative time. And my participants fuse those two things together in order to make a decision about when to share. They also talked about thinking about the layout on someone's screen as a when. So I sort of think about, you know, there's a spatial temporal aspect of sharing something in terms of timing. I call that template timing. And then they also talked, uh, many of my participants talked about the algorithms, right? And I'm doing scare quotes Mm. here, like (laughs) algorithmic timing, because a lot of them talked about the algorithm, but algorithms of their respective platforms, Reddit, Amazon, et cetera, but they didn't necessarily know how the algorithm functioned. So they had to sort of imagine algorithmic timing. They're like, I think this is how the algorithm works. And so this is going to dictate when I share something, when I post something, when I, when I, when I respond to something. Right. So there's also a, there's also a delicate balance that people talked about in my interviews they basically made the argument that, you know, you have to respond to some commenters, but you can't respond to them all or else, you you know, you spend all your time doing that. But you also don't want to set it up so that every, everybody who asks a question thinks they're going to get a response directly from you. And so there's a lot of like this afterlife, right, of all this timing that you have to do about like figuring out when to respond. You know, maybe um, some of the women science journalists who get who dealt with trolls actually wouldn't respond right away. They would wait for their, their, their other audience, their other audiences and readers to actually defend them. Right. So it was very strategic. They would go, Oh, there's this troll, but I know that my other readers are going to jump in here and defend me. So I don't have to respond to that one. Um, and sort of thinking, thinking very strategically about timing was really fascinating, both to learn as an interviewer also, and then to write about it in terms of the scholarly stuff. Paul Cook, and I am at Indiana University Kokomo. Would you like to join Charles on the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making and rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a conference to promote? Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project with an emphasis on inclusivity and localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. As we embark upon the newest season of the Big Rhetorical Podcast, please feel free to check out older episodes and our newest episodes wherever you get podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Anchor FM. If you have any questions about the Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find the Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at TheBigRet. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. 
We hope to hear from you soon. Now back to the show. interviews so I wonder if you would wouldn't mind talking a bit about more about the methods I know you had case studies 40 case studies but like mm-hmm. what 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 are the methods behind this like what are the, what was the groundwork that you had to do and, and things like the day-to-days to get this project done I have to thank my spouse because so recruiting people off of the internet complete strangers to interview as you can imagine is a, a fairly daunting task. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, you can, you can, there's a, there's a site, there's a website, uh, the karma lab where you can find people with the most karma and their usernames. And so I use that website to literally just message people. So I just messaged like the top 500 Redditors and I had a, a, some people responded to me and some people did not. Same thing happened with the Amazon reviewers to find the, the bloggers and the journalists I used a snowball sample with a couple of contacts that I had for my dissertation who sort of set me up. And then I basically looked around for well-known bloggers and, and literally emailed them, asking them to do an interview. And some people responded, some people didn't. Some people did interviews with me and then um, and had signed a consent form and then withdrew consent because they oh, were... Wow. Yeah, so there was, a, there was a, a really couple of really good participants who I interviewed. After I interviewed them... Like a couple of weeks later, they withdrew, mostly because they were worried about like their identity getting out, and you know, they were worried about some things they had written that maybe wasn't going to be so flattering to family members or whatever. So they kind of withdrew. That's fine. It's not wasn't that big of a deal. But yeah, so then I basically email or I interviewed anybody who responded to my email at any time that they wanted to, basically. So I did a lot of interviews at night because these. A lot of the people I, I talked to had day jobs. I had a couple interviews where I interviewed um, like Max Schlesinger um, once from like 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. Mm. Interviewed for like three hours, almost three hours. I interviewed a lot of the Redditors at night. I interviewed the journalists at night. And so my spouse very graciously watched our preschooler at that time while <laughs> I did the interviews in our basement. Probably my biggest piece of advice that to people who are listening to this podcast and people who want to do interviews with, with complete strangers, you, you have to like give them a reason to trust you. And so I tried very hard to create a gregarious, uh, kind environment. You know, I talked a little bit about myself personally. I set up a webpage. Um, a lot of them actually talked about like the webpage was when they knew I was a real person because I used, you know, Illinois faculty can set up a website on the Illinois servers and so they knew i was a real person like i had my picture up and all that stuff and so for you know interviewing the people you have to build a lot of trust and i think having a website that sort of talks about who you are and that you're a real researcher makes them more liable to talk to you i want to talk a little bit about like teaching and this book or pedagogy in this book in a couple of different ways um how do you hope that this book or how might this book 
inform folks pedagogy, people that work with in digital spaces in their classrooms? Yeah, that's a great question. So first and foremost, I think there's an impediment to sort of attending to the afterlife of writing, whether it's digital or not. So regardless of it being digital or not, we have to deal with the structure of the classroom, right? Mm -hmm. Which, which deals with, which it, it deals with timing, right? I mean, we set the timing for students by giving out deadlines. I mean, and we're, we're given no choice in time, at least with respect to the semester, right? We have to do these things in a, what, 12 to 14, 12 to 14 week or 12 to 16 week semester, you know, spring or fall, you know, maybe people are on the quarter system or whatnot. But so we have all of these like institutional barriers and then um, like seasonal barriers to sort of attending to the afterlife. But I think one of the most important things to, to help students if they want to be a writer sort of in the real world, quote unquote, there are a lot of things that writers do after they write that are just as important as the things they do before they write. Um, right. So, you know, very rarely does someone sort of put a text out there and then the text just sort of functions without their help. And I actually talked about um, this idea in a in an undergrad class earlier in the semester, back when we were in face-to-face -face mode, I guess lectured in a colleague's class. And one of the students asked me, well, don't you think that, uh, you know, novels should, should should sort of succeed on their own merits rather than having someone help the novel along to succeed. And I said, I don't think any novels succeed like that. I don't think a, a novel succeeds on its own merits ever. You know, people do book reviews about a book. People do book tours. You know, you might, you might try to get someone to blurb your book. You might have, you know, help out to, you know, try to get people to assign your book, you know, people to assign your writing. And so I think there's a whole variety of activities that we could sort of integrate into our pedagogies that don't necessarily have to be related to what I was just talking about there. But I do think there needs to be some gesture towards, well, what are you going to do <clears throat> with your writing after some after your teacher's done with it, right? So for instance, right, the example that a lot of people oftentimes point to, at least in my experience, is that is a good start to this, is people will, students or faculty will take a whole bunch of student texts and then put them into like a little student magazine, right? And students really like that. You know, they can give it to one another and actually putting a bunch of essays into a little magazine is sort of saying like, hey, we're going to do actually do something with this, with this writing besides just grade it. And so I think that students need to sort of be made aware of all of the things they could do with their writing after they're, after they've written it and then actually do something in terms of an afterlife with writing in the classroom. So that's sort of the, the general answer, right? Outside of the digital stuff. And then if we go directly to digital pedagogies, then we, then we have to deal with, you know, well, how do you deal with trolls? How do you, what kind of different platforms do you need to be on? Right. There's a whole lot of things that we could be doing that are directly relevant for the classroom. Um, you know, thinking about, okay, you've written this text, you know, how would you share this text on Twitter? How would you share this text on Reddit? How would you share this text on a blog? How would you share this text in a formal content management system, whatever it happens to be, right? So there's a lot of different choices if we get to digital pedagogy that are there and available for us. When you were talking about timing earlier, I was specifically thinking about digital. And what I was thinking about was how there are different constraints based on the platform. Like I was thinking specifically about social media platforms and not necessarily websites or softwares. And I was thinking about 
like for example twitter like i can't edit a tweet like i have to delete a tweet right but on facebook that has a completely different set of constraints and affordances i can go in and i can edit my posts and i see a lot of people do that now they'll like post something and then below it they'll say edit and then they'll edit edit it to include more information or more accurate information Mm-mm. yeah and i mean one of the original reasons why twitter isn't editable is because so people can't get a bunch of likes and retweets and then change it you could sort of see how that could go very poorly very quickly right people right. control people with something inspiring and then turn it into a horrific quote or something like that and you would have retweeted sure. it and facebook used to be like that and that, that was facebook's explicit policy and i think it changed somewhere back in like 2013 but i actually remember when it, when you were able to edit an original post you could always you could edit a comment for a long time but you couldn't edit the original post for this exact reason but i think this happens a lot right and i mean you could think about this in terms of pedagogy you know oftentimes what i have students do in terms of my digital writing classes is they try to sort of build a following what are all the choices they're making to build a following right what does a following look like what does you know they need to oftentimes i also ask them to like what does a successful following look like? You know, it's not just raw numbers, but, you know, maybe you want a high level of engagement, right? Total, like a large number of Twitter followers doesn't, doesn't do a lot of people good. But if you have an active group of people who are interested in offering you feedback, you know, that might be way more successful than having 50,000 Twitter followers. You know, thinking about those choices and seeing that those choices are iterative in the sense that they arc backwards into how you originally write an approach is important, right? So this, you know, the afterlife is thinking about all of those choices that you make after you write, but then it's also thinking about how all of those choices sort of arc backwards, sort of echo backwards into the original writing process. Um, and thinking about the, the afterlife is not necessarily separate from the writing process. It's just trying to expand it to create a more um, generous and generative writing process. Well, you know, and I think, you know, I think sometimes people, you know, many times people do this sort of implicitly in their pedagogies, right? So people might think about venue, right? Venue selection is really thinking about, you know, not just about who your audience is, but about um, who your audience is on the, for this venue. You know, how would you write something for Slate versus how would you just compose a random tweet? How would you compose something for the New York Times versus like if you were if you were writing for Fox News? I mean, you know. Those would be those would be different venues, right? You know, championing the liberal cause on Slate would be a, is a different rhetorical act than championing the liberal cause on Fox News. You've alluded to this in all of your answers, but I want to ask you more directly: like, what is what are the connections that Afterlife is making to audience and their participation in in the circulation of of text? Yeah, so this is actually so my my specialty is audience theory. You know, a lot of my theoretical lens is audience. So, you know, my dissertation was about audience. Um, I've got a couple articles about audience. And so the afterlife, the digital afterlife is so large and so intense. You know, I, I say, you know, update culture is basically, the you know, the afterlife taken to its highest intensity. It's so intense because we have real-time reception from audiences. So the example I sort of use, the historical example is, you know, we used to have people writing in the margins of books. Authors could read the comments in the margins of, of books that they would, you know, could find, and that might have some sort of effect on what they wrote. But it wouldn't have a huge effect because it wouldn't be in real time, 
and there would be a lot of them. There would be a ton of comments in the margins. Now we have real-time audience reception, and it's almost infinite, or at least it's a possibility for infinite. What I mean by that is if you write something with a comment section, um, blogs, YouTube videos, Amazon reviews, Reddit, whatever it happens to be, like almost every platform has the ability for someone to comment on what you wrote, Twitter, Facebook, et cetera. There's not only is there a space designated for the audience to response, but that space can, is basically infinite, right? There's no cap on the number of comments that you can get on a post. And so the reason why audience enables the afterlife to get off the ground is because it exists, right? We have, we have these digital audience receptors that are sort of everywhere. And so if we weren't paying attention to what audiences were actually saying about our texts, how they were actually receiving it, then the afterlife just simply wouldn't exist. In what ways does something like interface design affect afterlife? Well, I mean, I've got a couple of pieces um, about interface. So that, that's sort of like the, the first chapter I, is sort of my theoretical chapter, which I call template timing. And templates are a version, it's a subset of interfaces. And templates are, you know, we now exist in Web 2.0. Web 1.0 was non-interactive websites, and we now live with interactive websites. People don't need web development kits or skills. Um, people don't need to know HTML or CSS. They don't need to know JavaScript. They don't need to know coding language. You can build a website with with uh, drag and drop templates. You can right. you can even do a lot of stuff with coding nowadays, like R Studio. You know, I work on R Studio. You don't need to know a lot of code to know our studio. I mean, you can basically build computer scripts now without knowing a ton about computer code. And so well, how does the interface affect it? Well, it's democratized it, right? Web 2.0 has democratized people's ability to interact with one another. So everybody can do it and everybody can respond using templates, using the interfaces, right? The interfaces are super easy, they're super simple. You know, people can swipe, people can tap, people can type, and everybody has a voice. So I would say sort of, you know, the democratization of interfaces via interactive templates enable audiences to write back and talk back to initial writers and authors. And thus we have to attend to all of that real-time audience response that we get. In what ways, like, is is this work pushing the boundaries of, something like remix that question may not be great i can reframe that no it's good it's good when we i think the i think the questions i think the difference for me is a difference in focus you know people are when you focus on remix you're focusing on the act of discourse itself you're focused uh -huh. on the the music you're focused on the text you're focused on the image you're focused on the video right Whereas I'm much more focused on what are the people who are doing those things and what are they doing? Plenty of people who I interviewed were doing things that I would call remixing or memification. I was less focused on their, their creation, the memes they created or the videos they created or the text that they created. And I was more focused on the choices they were making around all of those texts and acts of discourse and what they were doing. So I'm, I'm much more interested in what are the people doing um, rather than what are they, what are the writers doing while they write and after they write? 
Um, so, for instance, a uh, couple examples that I can talk about is um, in terms of attention, right? So I have, a, I have a chapter in the book called Textual Attention. And people were really careful about what comments to respond to because mm-hmm. you don't respond to the, the trolls, right? The dickheads. You don't respond to them. But you also don't respond to the people who are like just giving you praise. Right? People, thank you very much, exclamation point. Um, one of my participants said he's a blogger and actually he got a promotion from sort of taking on a troll and sort of contacted his boss that like this troll might have gone after him. He said, oh, you know, I just want you to know that this troll might come after me. And uh, he ended up uh, getting a promotion on the basis of like his boss found out all these good stuff he was doing. So he, he has this great quote that has stuck with me even beyond the book. He said, it's either trolling or effusive praise and he said i'm not interested in either of those extremes i'm interested in figuring out the people who have genuine questions who have since who have a sincere query for me that's who i'll respond to right and if you just looked at the text you would just get a sense of oh he was just responding to this question or that question no, but he was very, very discerning about what to respond to and when. Um, and a lot of my participants were very discerning about what to respond to, what questions to read, excuse me, what comments, what comments to read, what questions to respond to. And so there's just like this vast sense in which there's a lot of choices that are being made behind the scenes that are after someone writes that I think we need to pay attention to. And we do this all the time with stuff that happens before we write. So, you know, we oftentimes ask students to think about where are you writing? You know, in what space are you writing? What 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 technology are you using to write? Are you going to write on a desktop? Are you going to write on a laptop? Are you going to write on a tablet? Are you going to write on your phone? Right? All of these different kinds of questions we ask students to consider as they sort of take on the, the role of the writer. Well, there's a whole lot of roles that people, you know, there's a whole lot of choices that people are making after they write. We, we asked as, as, as writing faculty, we often ask, ask people to think about writing in terms of all the things they're doing, right? Where you write, the location, their office, et cetera. But there's a whole lot of things that pe- writers do after they write, too, that, that we need to ask them to take on. Where do we go from here with this idea of afterlife? So there's a couple directions we could go with. Um, I sort of have a list at the end of the book. You know, the, the first we could talk about, so my book is focused on the afterlife of individual writers. And so people could focus on the afterlife of organizations and how do, how do organizations write and communicate in terms of after they write and communicate? Um, what are all the choices that they make when, let's say, they release a, when they, when they um, give out a press release? What do organizations do with that press release after they release it, right? Um, so it could be the organizational aspect. Uh, the second one would be about in terms of audience. So my research has really come around to this idea of machine audiences, thinking about bots and thinking about algorithms um, and thinking about like actual robots as real audiences. And I don't just mean that as like they're going to give my writing a, a score, right? And same with like standardized testing, but like real genuine interlocutors who to a certain extent understand the text that you've written. So, you know, if the first one is organizational um, afterlife, the second one is, is really related to machine audiences. 
And then probably the third area um, that my book is trying to crank open for is this idea of time and thinking about how we time writing. And sort of it's a very oral notion that sort of gets plopped right into writing. Um, and I think, you know, those are sort of three possible directions. And I mentioned a couple other ones in the, at the conclusion of the book, too. What are some other things that you want to talk about or about the text that maybe we haven't covered yet? So in the chapter on management, I talk a lot about how there's there's a gender sp- disparity. The participants who identify as women really had a lot more work to do in terms of managing, right? They had a lot more trolls. They had a lot more jerks. And they have a much better honed sense of management than my male participants did. You know, a couple of people have asked me like, oh, when, you know, when do you talk about like issues of gender in terms of online discourse? I'm like in the in the chapter on management, because um, I think it, that's where that's where it cropped up the most explicitly in my interviews with people. So that would probably be one one main point that I wanted to touch on. OK, excellent. Well, where can folks find you um, on social media or find the book on social media? My handle, my Twitter handle is at uh, mere sophistry. Okay. Uh, so I'm I'm there. I follow you on Twitter. So that's my handle. And uh, my email is John G, J-O-H-N-G at Illinois.eu if anybody has any questions about it. And uh, the book is available from Utah State University Press. And there's a coupon code, G-A-L-L, it's GAL, 20. Um, and that knocks uh, 40% off the cost. So the book is the book is actually pretty reasonable. It's like $26. Um, but with the coupon code, it knocks it down to like $17. So it's a pretty good price. And I'm hoping that some people will assign it in their classes because it's a pretty reasonable book to buy. And I told anybody, um, if you're willing to assign the book, I'll actually Skype in and talk about the book. So if anybody assigns the book, I'll Skype in and talk about it. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, well, while we're in quarantine, John, thank you so much for chatting with me today. I'm really, yeah, but thank yeah you thanks so again. I really appreciate this. This was fun. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Absolutely. Thanks so much, John. with Dr. John Gallagher. As we approach the end of our second season and look towards season three, which will include the production of our 50th episode, I'm asking you to please write a review for the podcast. By writing a review, you will help the podcast's visibility across platforms on which the podcast is available. That's the primary thing we need right now as we take the next steps in expanding our reach. Thank you for your help with this. Okay, rhetorical listeners, make sure to download all episodes of The Big Rhetorical Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at The Big Rhett and find us on Facebook. You can email the podcast at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com and you can buy merch from our online store, cafepress.com slash tbrpodmerch. Until next time, be kind to one another and always be listening rhetorically.